as we continue on this series of building up foundations for our church. We talked about how as we seek to see the Lord grow our church and add people to our church and see our church grow, we want to make sure we have a good foundation set before we start building upon that foundation. And the 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 most important part of the foundation is the gospel, the central message of Christianity. If we're going to know anything about our faith, it has to be this, the gospel. What is the, what is the good news message? And we said the reason we need to know that good news message is because it's the power of God for salvation for all people who believe. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All people are saved by the power of God in this gospel message. That's what Paul describes it in his, in his initial uh, thesis statement of the book of Romans. And as a matter of fact, let's go ahead and read that together um, out loud this morning. So uh, if you go to, yep, Josiah is one step ahead of me. He's already got it up there. We're going to read this statement together, but it's because this is the foundation or this is the thesis statement for this whole book. So let's read this <coughs> statement together. One, two, three. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Yeah, that thesis statement of Romans, that's what he's going to explain in this whole book, the power of God for salvation. And we talked about how the gospel has a shape to it. Um, we talked about how it has a fourfold shape to it. God, man, Christ response. So if you're going to share the gospel with somebody, no matter if you use the bridge illustration or, an, or, or a gospel cube or, or the three circles method, whatever method you share the gospel, you've got to have these same ingredients every time. It's who is God? Who's man in relation to God and what have we done? Who is Jesus and how does he fix what we've done? And how do we respond to that? God, man, Christ response. So far in the book of Romans, we've seen who God is. He's that God that rules over us. He's the ruling creator. He made us. We're his. We're accountable to him. He's a gracious savior who wants to love his children, even though they've sinned against him. And he's a righteous judge who doesn't just excuse sin. We talked about how that kind of creates a problem for us, right? There's, there's this God who we're sinful God doesn't excuse sin, yet he wants to love and forgive sin. So there's, this, there's this, uh, this tension that has to be fixed, right? And we saw that we're created in, in his image. We rebelled against him. And now as we've been studying these last few uh, passages, we've seen that we're hopeless without him. We're going to have one more hopeless sermon before we get to the hope sermon uh, of next week. So today we're going to look at the hopelessness um, of religion and see how religion is or how our relationship with God, it all comes down to the heart. It all comes down to the heart. So we think of um, possibilities. So we think of things that are possible and impossible. There's probably some things in your life that you can think of, this would be impossible. And there's other things in your life you might think, it's possible. Uh, recently, my uh, son, Javen, he had a uh, challenge that he challenged me and Whitney to. And he said, well, let's just not watch anything. And you parents know that's impossible, right? He said, let's just not watch anything. No TV, no screens. And we're like, okay, I'll do it as long as you'll do it. 
Uh, that lasted about a day uh, because that was impossible. If you said, is it possible for your kids to go a week? That was his goal. Let's go for a week. Is it possible for you to go a week without watching TV? I would say, no, that's not possible. Because there's some things that we know in life that are just impossible. Well, today we're going to look at two possibilities, things that are possible that you might not think are possible. First, we're going to see that it's, it's possible, number one, it's possible to have God's law and not be right with God. It's possible to have God's law and yet not be right with God. That's the first possibility we're going to look at. Our second possibility is this. It's possible to do religious things or religious rituals and not be right with God. It's possible to do religious rituals and not be right with God. So let's pick up and let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. I'll read that out loud for you. You can follow along in your Bible. and We're going to look and see these two possibilities mentioned in this passage. Let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. It says this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are uh, instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor or hate idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Verse 25, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the first possibility we see, as I mentioned, is this. It's possible to have God's law and not be right with God. Remember, this this passage started out with the word for. Okay, the word for also could be translated as because. And if you see for, uh, that means that what's about to be said is proving what was just said. So Paul said something, 
And now he's saying because of something else. So we know that this passage is continuing from last week. And the last thing God said in that passage was God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Is that true? Does God... Does God truly not show partiality? Does God have chosen people? Well, he did, right? He had the chosen people in the Old Testament, the Jewish people. They were his chosen people. And even, yes, today, God has chosen people. He has the the church, right? We read in Ephesians that um, before the foundations of the world, God chose us in Christ. But the partiality that he's speaking of here is in regard to judgment, Everyone is judged with equal scales. No one uh, gets a pass because of who they are, what they've done, where they've been. No one gets a pass. So is God going to judge people differently if they have the law or if they don't have the law? In some sense, yes, but ultimately no. Because he says this in this passage. He says there's some people who have the law, the Jews, and yet they don't follow the law. They still break it. And he says sometimes Gentiles who don't have the law do follow the law and they keep it um, just by just by obeying in general. So God will judge both of these people, whether they have the law or they do not have the law. He says, for all have sinned, uh, verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The Jewish people were under God's law and will be judged by it. Having the law didn't actually make Jewish people behave better. That's the interesting thing about the law. Having the law didn't make the Jewish people behave perfectly or behave better. Having those rules did not bring about a better moral life or better moral living. The law, the reason why that is, is because the law was weakened by the flesh, by human beings. The law is weakened by flesh. Romans 8, 30, or 8, sorry, 8, 1 through 3 says this. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of death has set you free from the law in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. Verse 3 says this, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So God gave this good law. The law was good. It was a good things that God commanded the people to do or to not do. It was a good thing. But that law was weakened because of human flesh. The law could not do, or the, God, the law could not bring about what it was intended to do, which was righteousness. So Romans 8 tells us that God did what the law could not do by sending his son Jesus. So the law was weakened by the flesh. So just having the law wasn't enough to make these Jews right with God. He says it's not the hearers of God's law who are made right, but the ones who do it. The ones who do it. It's not just hearing the law. It's not just hearing about what God says, but if you actually do it. What about the Gentiles? The Gentiles were not under God's law formally. They didn't have, they were not under God's law like the Jews were formally. But sometimes they would obey the law unintentionally. There's a general morality that exists in a lot of humans. If you go to pretty much any place in the world and ask them, is it okay to punch babies? They're going to say, no, it's not okay to punch babies. There's a general consensus on that among all human beings. It's not okay to do that. These, these Gentile people would even sometimes obey the laws of God, like in regard to uh, justice and righteousness in transactions. There's a law in the Old Testament that would say, hey, if you've got a crop, 
um, leave some of the crop on the, on the vine. So that way when a foreigner comes through, they can pick some food from that and be fed and be, be taken care of. If a Gentile were to do that because he thought, hey, it's a good thing to help somebody who's traveling through, I'll do that. They obeyed God's law. Even though they weren't commanded to do it, they did. They obeyed it because God's law was written on their heart. God gives all human beings a conscience that speaks to what is right. And sometimes people who don't have God's law obey that. And what does that do? It doesn't make them right with God when they obey it necessarily, but it does show they understand. They know. So both the Jewish person who had the law and the Gentile who didn't have the law both prove that God is right because sometimes they act accordingly to what he commands. So when they followed the law unintentionally, it showed that they had enough knowledge to follow it and they didn't have an excuse. So sometimes Gentiles obey the law. Sometimes Jews disobey the law. What happened when the Jewish people would disobey the law? Well, it says rather than them being a light to the nations, it says that the nations blasphemed God's name because of the nations when they did not obey the law. That's why he says, you who are teachers of the law, do you not teach yourselves? If you teach against stealing, you shouldn't steal. Why are you stealing? If you're teaching against adultery, you shouldn't be committing adultery. Why are you committing adultery? He even says, you who hate idols, do you rob temples? We don't really have evidence that Jewish people went around robbing temples, but I think that's a metaphor for you tell people not to worship idols, but do you create idols in your heart? The Jews were doing the exact same thing that they were told, that they were telling other people not to do. I think the application for us today, first we've got to let it marinate and say, okay, the Jews were not made right even though God gave them the law. But if we bring that up and over into today and think, how does that apply to us? Just because we have the book, the Bible, doesn't make us right with God. I love the Bible. I value it. It's actually one of our core principles here at this church. We're becoming more like Jesus together in, uh, through his word, in his community, for his mission, right? In his word is that first priority. I think the Bible is, is the most important thing for us to understand and study. But just possessing one and just hearing it doesn't, isn't enough to make us right with God. Just having a copy of the Bible on your shelf doesn't make you right with God. As Christians, we must not fall into the same temptation that the Jews fell under. I'm a Jewish person. I've got the law. I'm under the law. That means I'm good. That's not the gospel message that we're teaching. It's not just, hey, buy a Bible and you're good. And we're also not just saying, hey, read the Bible and do some stuff in it and you're good. There's more to a relationship with God than having his book. There's more to a, uh, a relationship with God than having his book. So that's the first possibility that we see. It's possible to have God's law and not be right with him. Here's the second possibility. It's possible to do religious things or religious rituals and not be right with God. At the end of this passage, it speaks of circumcision. Um, circumcision was a mark of God's people in the Old Testament. God, when he called Abraham up out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he called him over to his place. He gave him, he started this relationship with Abraham um, and formed a covenant with him. And the, the sign of that covenant <clears throat> was circumcision. He commanded Abraham to be circumcised and to circumcise his children um, who would come after him, his, his sons who would come after him. This is, again, in some sense, this is a cultural mandate that 
doesn't quite make sense in our culture. This was given to the Jewish people as a sign for them. But if they didn't live according to it, what good was it? Another way to say, if circumcision circumcision was only on the outside, what good is it? See, circumcision was meant to be an outward expression of what was going on on the inside. It was was an act of submission to God on the outside that was supposed to be reflective of the heart that was in submission on the inside, uh, a removing of flesh, a cutting off of flesh. So circumcision was supposed to be a picture of something on the outside that we do that was, that was uh, going on on the inside. Does that sound similar or familiar to anything in our current set status, right? Baptism. What's the sign of, of the believers in the new covenant? It's that we would be baptized and then take the Lord's Supper. We would be baptized and take the Lord's Supper. So we see not a one-to-one correlation between circumcision and baptism, But they're related in the sense that baptism is an outward expression of what's gone on inside of your heart. We go under the water to show that we've died to sin, just like Christ died for our sin. And we're raised up out of the water to show that we're raised to new life. But if the heart is not behind what you do in our baptismal, there's no more than taking a a bath back there or taking a a swim. It's no different. Because Paul's making the point here. Just because you do a religious ritual on the outside does not make you right with God. It's not really that hard to get baptized. You just go underwater and come back up, right? It's it's not physically that difficult. Lots of people have been baptized throughout the years who were doing something on the outside that did not match what was going on on the inside. And the same thing applies. Paul says to the the Jew that's, that's circumcised but doesn't live like it, what, what good is circumcision if you're not going to do it? Actually, if you don't obey God's law and you're circumcised, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's as if you didn't have it. In the same way, Christian, if, if you've been baptized yet, you're not intentionally living in submission to God's law, reflecting that death to sin and, and aliveness to Christ, then what good was your baptism if it doesn't mean what you said it meant? So what does all this have to do with the gospel? Because we've been talking about, we're laying a foundation for the gospel, and now you're talking about God's law and circumcision. What does all that have to do with the gospel? But do we have to go into all that every time we talk about uh, the gospel with somebody? No, I don't think you have to go into those details. But the idea is that you would be, uh, you would understand um, what, it, what the gospel is that we're sharing to somebody. What are we offering to somebody when we say, here's the good news? That's what gospel means. It's good news. Here's the good news. Well, the good news is we're not offering them some program of things to do. We're not offering them some 12-step program to say, here, follow these rules and do all these things right and maybe everything will work out good. No. Religion, that's religion without relationship. Religion without relationship, it's no good at all. It's like an empty present. Like you get the present, you open it, and there's nothing in it. That's what religion is without relationship. It's kind of like having a bank account or some stocks that are actually uh, um, in decline. You can pump all the money you want into a stock that's in decline, but all you're doing is wasting your money. It's like taking a bucket and trying to throw out all the water from your boat when there's a hole in the bottom of the boat. You can work really, really hard at a religion and it do nothing for you. 
You can work really hard at a religion and do nothing, and it do nothing for you. That's why John Bunyan, that, that Puritan writer from the 1600s, said this, to run and work the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The law will say, hey, do, 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 and it won't give you the power to do it. It's like me asking you to go out and rake the yard and not give you a rake to do it with. I'm telling you to do something, but I don't give you the power to do it. That's in some sense what the law was. The law was given that it would expose our sin. It says, hey, do these things, but we don't have the spirit inside of us to do the law. The law is a good thing. Yet if we don't, we're not empowered to do it, it's a bad thing because it condemns us. Yet the gospel is greater because it says, as Bunyan says, it says fly and then it gives you the wings to do it. It says we have this, this call to be righteous with God. And not only are we called to do that, he gives us the spirit to be enabled to do that. As Christ dies on the cross and pays for our sins and raises to life, to new life, and we have faith in him, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit and we can live this out. Religion, we, that, that word has a ton of baggage that comes along with it. Uh, technically, I don't have a problem with saying religion. I think it, it, it's, a fine, it's, word, it's a fine word. It describes what a lot of people do around the world. Um, but it gets a bad rap because religion's kind of easy to fake. And it, it, it's like we talked about last week. It smells real bad when somebody's a religious hypocrite. That's why we talk about a lot of times in Christianity relationship over religion. So if you have a religion, and I think you should, right? You should have a Christian religion. You should follow the laws that God has. But if you follow those laws without having a relationship with him, then it's empty. It's pointless. It's nothing. It's nothing. That's why it's important. That's why this applies to the gospel. When you go out to share the gospel with somebody, you're not saying, hey, if you come to church and you hear this sermon and you do these things, then you're going to be right with God. That's not what we're offering people when we offer them the gospel. Uh, we're offering an invitation to trust in, to turn from sin and trust in Christ through faith, through faith. And we're going to get into all that next week as we talk about faith in Christ. Um, but to suffice it to say, we're not offering people a 12-step program. We are giving them the opportunity to be saved by God. Because this passage comes along at the proper time, uh, at the right time in this. Remember, thus far in Romans, Romans 1 is like, hey, there's a gospel and it's offered to everybody. And Romans 1 starts going through that laundry list of all the people that need the gospel, uh, of the liars, the gossips, um, the sinners, all of these things. And as the, the Jewish people would have been, amen, we, we agree that those things are bad. Paul comes to this point to say, and you who condemn all those sins, you're guilty of them too. You're guilty of the same thing. The reason Paul does Romans 1 and Romans 2 before he gets to Romans 3 is that we all need to be brought to that same position of realizing we are sinners in need of a savior because religion will keep you from realizing that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Religion will keep you from realizing you need a savior because as this verse says, as this verse says, his praise is not from man, but from God. When you, when you have religion, and you think you're right because of religion, what you're really doing is doing outward things so that other people will see the good things that you have done and declare you right. But with Christianity, it's not that way. It's not about the outward things that we can do to show that we're right, but it's about what Christ has done already to make us right and trusting in that. It's not about outward conformity, 
but about inward transformation. And that's only possible by the cross of Christ. It's only possible by the cross of Christ. We're all made in God's image. We've all rebelled against God's standard. We're all helpless without him, even in religion. Yet, God has made a way in Christ Jesus. And I pray that this morning we would be more like the tax collector than the Pharisee. You remember that story from the Gospels in Luke? I want to read it to you. But it's a story of this Pharisee, this religious person, and a tax collector, a sinful person. And this is Jesus describing them. He says this, and we'll end here. This comes from Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He said, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Sounds like the people he was talking to in chapter 2, right? He told this parable to those who trusted in themselves and thought they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said this, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one Pharisee, And one tax collector, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This morning, I pray that you'd be like that tax collector. I pray that I would be like that tax collector. Not like the Pharisee who comes into God's temple and says, I'm good, I follow all the rules, I'm better than this guy. No, that we would be like the tax collector that bows down, won't even lift up his eyes, but just to say, God, be merciful to me because I need it. May we be stripped of empty religion that can't do anything for us and may we be filled with the Spirit of God that we might trust in Christ humbled knowing that we need a savior, not proud and boastful thinking that we don't. Let's pray this morning.